to read from John chapter 19. I'll let you remain seated this morning as we read it. Verse 1. This is the English Standard Version. Read along with me. Words are on the screen if you need them, I think. Yeah, they're there. Verse 1, chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is the word of the Lord. So we've got a lot of text this morning, don't we? Um, I want to be real honest with you as, as we get going into this. Uh, I don't have a lot of application for you today. Um, and that's primarily because I don't think this text really needs any extra help. I, I think um, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of sermons in this, these 27 verses, and there might be some places where you say, hold up, can we stay there a little longer? You know, what, is, what does that mean, or, or what does this mean for us? Um, but what I want to give you this morning is a whole picture of Christ going to the cross that was given him by his Father. I want you to weep for your sin. I want you to weep for the love of Jesus. I want you to see the cross like it's the first time you ever read about it. I, I want you to see the cross of Jesus Christ. And I want you to feel like you just got saved all over again. That's basically what happened to me this week. So um, Joey preached last week, John chapter 18, and finished that chapter for us. We got up to the point of a release of a man named Barabbas, who was a robber. They cried out for Barabbas in Jesus's place. Jesus had been on trial before Pilate. Pilate was a wealthy Roman governor, and uh, as uh, Joey said, lived at the beach and had his his wealthy lifestyle, but uh, Pilate tried to just kind of let the Jews handle this themselves, um, but that the, the Jews knew that, that murder would pretty much break their law, so they kind of needed the Romans to be involved. They needed Pilate's help to make their sin justifiable, so Pilate and Jesus go into his headquarters and have a little conversation about whether he's a king or not. And then Pilate goes back outside to tell the Jews his verdict. Here's what I think about this man. I find no guilt in him. Pilate even says, in fact, I know your custom at the Passover is to release one individual from their punishment. Maybe Jesus should be that guy this year. Well, that's not what they were hoping for. So the Jews cry out in rage, not this man, but Barabbas. Let's release him instead. And so the atoning work of Substitution begins. Peter is gone. We don't know what he's doing. Um, uh, John is, is evidently there, kind of watching nearby, the disciple whom he loved. We don't know where the other disciples are. They, they, are, they have scattered. Jesus stands before a crowd of bloodthirsty Jews with a robber named Barabbas being uncuffed and set free among them. They celebrate with their feasts and their days and their booths, and they're saying, How great the salvation of the Lord! We have put the Lamb's blood over Barabbas' life. And so when the Spirit of the Lord comes through, just like he did in the first Passover, Barabbas will be overlooked and he will be saved. But Jesus, that Egyptian pagan, he will die by the curse of God for calling himself Lord, calling himself the Son of God. And unknowingly, these wicked Pharisees and Jewish officers and townspeople would actually be fulfilling everything that Elisha just read in Isaiah 53. The innocent would be the substitute for the transgressor. You guys have heard me preach a number of times, and I'm a three-point preacher, <laughs> um, but we got six points today. So we're going to move fast. We're going we're gonna to run through this thing, okay? 
so I, I tried to prepare you in the weeks ahead to kind of get ready for the brutality of, of going through uh, this passage verse by verse, but um, uh, the Lord is good and, and um, his cross is, is moving. So uh, we're going to first look at Christ crowned for us. Christ crowned for us. Look at verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So Pilate was sort of the compassionate guy saying, I find no guilt in him, and he quickly moves to being an executioner. He turns to flogging Jesus. That word flog means to whip, to beat, to scourge, to lash. And so he might have struck him with his hand. He might have beat him with a weapon or some type of uh, whip. But either way, th this was just the beginning of Jesus' torment that was about to take place. Jesus, or, or Pilate begins to beat Jesus. The soldiers sort of take their cue as he begins to beat him. And, and even though this is a Jewish trial, the Roman soldiers begin getting involved and they, they gather together these thorny vines and twist them together into a circle like a crown and, and put this on our Lord's head. And typically, a crown to be worn by a king would be made of soft olive leaves given to someone in power and, and in, in authority. But here... We have this mocking crown of thorns being pressed into the Savior's forehead with blood dripping down into his eyes and humiliation from all of his peers. They're doing something very unique here, not just by the crown placed upon his head, but also by a purple robe draped over his body. Purple also meaning royalty, uh, meaning uh, power and authority, meaning a, a kingly status. And so they are not uh, treating him like any other uh, victim, perhaps, uh, but rather they are, they are really making this particularly cruel and, and, and making a mockery of, of his statement as the son of God, a king. So they come to him, and it seems like maybe one by one, and with their mocking... Uh, garments that they put on him they say hail king of the jews and with that phony salute the soldiers would come by and strike the savior in his purple robe and his crown by now let me remind you we're only three verses in jesus would have had blood in his eyes and all down his face black and blue eyelids swollen like baseballs bloody lips, lashings all over his body. Is this the punishment that Barabbas would have received? Would this be enough to satisfy the rage of the crowd? Perhaps by Roman law, this would be enough to satisfy the, the sin of a robber. But by God's decree, Jesus wasn't just substituting for the sin of a robbery, was he? There was more to come. He was substituting for the sins of wicked hearts in front of a holy God. His punishment would go far deeper than what would occur in these three verses. But Pilate didn't know that. Jesus was not only crowned for us, but number two, Jesus was cursed for us. This was more than a beating that was going to take place. He was cursed. Look at verse four. 
Pilate went out and again said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the uh, Jews go on to say, well, we've got this law that we've got to follow. He's got to die for calling himself the Son of God, making himself the Son of God. So Pilate steps outside his headquarters and he kind of holds up Jesus, you know, all bloodied and beaten and says, here, behold the man, here he is, your, your, your king who you think is threatening, you know, all of the Jewish people and, and your power and your rule, here he is, this one that you want to kill so badly, look at him, kind of a sarcastic thing, and, and I think Pilate's motive here is to say, really, this is the one who you want to crucify, harmless, look at him, he's beaten to a pulp, behold the man. People cry out, crucify, crucify. Here's our first motion of crucifixion from the people. What is crucifixion? If you've grown up in church or around church, you might know some of the details, but some of you might not. Crucifixion was a cruel practice of execution for criminals in which the guilty person would march down a public designated place of death carrying a large wooden tree on their back while everyone watched, spit, cursed, and mocked. They would, lay three, or they would lay the tree on the ground. They would drive nails through the guilty person's hands and feet and stand the tree upright, letting the criminal hang there as a spectacle of shame, naked and slowly dying. It would take hours for that person to die, usually of suffocation, not being able to breathe, losing too much blood, or fainting. We hear this and we think it's absolutely disgusting, which it is. But this was a very normal practice in Jesus' day. Um, about a hundred years before Jesus even came on the scene, there was a high priest named Alexander Janaeus who crucified 800 criminals in one weekend. He ordered his soldiers because of some revolt that was going on to kill 6,000 men, 800 of them hanging on trees. Crucifixion happened pretty regularly. It's kind of uh, unbelievable as we you know, are still researching the most peaceful ways to, to kill prisoners on death row. Uh, and to see people crucified like this is pretty shocking. But Deuteronomy 21 says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he was put to death, and you hang him on a tree, you must not leave the body on the tree overnight, but you must be sure to bury him that day. Because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. These people were shouting, crucify, crucify. They knew that tree hangings were only for people worthy of death. People who were cursed, not by the people, but people who were cursed by God. So they say crucify, this man is cursed by God. The tree was not unusual, but the undeserved curse of God's wrath on a sinless person had never happened in all of human history. This was the hour that had finally come. But Pilate, 
was unhappy, of course, with their cries. He was trying to, to, to maybe just beat him and get him free. But he says, maybe with some frustration in his voice, Fine! Take him yourself! You crucify him! I've already told you I find no guilt in him, so you take him. You go get the tree. You go get the nails. You do it. The Jews respond, of course, we have a law. We know, Deuteronomy 21, you don't understand, Pilate, this man has made himself the son of God. According to our law, he must die. No one can call himself God and get away with it. And John says at this point that Pilate became even more afraid. The Greek might say better, he was very much afraid, or he became afraid rather than being angry or frustrated. Consider the Roman official for a moment. He knew little about Jewish laws. He'd been interviewing Jesus so far about his kingship. Are you a king or is you ain't a king? The word God has not come up yet. And now they're saying this man is cursed because he's called himself God. He's made himself God. And so fear enters Pilate. Why? Well, because if this man is divine, he should just beat him to a pulp. If this man is some kind of God, what is that going to mean for Pilate after he has done this, this horrid punishment on him? Fear overcame him. If anyone should be fearful in this moment, though, it's not Pilate. It should be Jesus. He was about to experience the very wrath of his father poured out like wine at the wedding of Cana. If only Pilate could see the curse of God, that would be something to be fearful of. But right now, he's still worried about his own skin. So maybe this would be a good time for Jesus to say something. He hasn't said anything yet this far in. So let's, let's see if he'll say anything. And I'll tell you that he's not. In verse 9, uh, he closed his mouth for us. Number 3, he closed his mouth for us. He entered his headquarters again, said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and, and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Pilate's scheme didn't work out. He takes bloodied Jesus back inside his headquarters and he's like, okay, be real with me. Where are you from? What, what is that? talk about God stuff. And this isn't like, you know, are you from Nazareth? Are you from Galilee? This is like, what planet, right? You from earth? Are you, what, what are you? Are you a God or not? Jesus says nothing. Like in chapter 7, they ask him a similar question, the Pharisees, the Jews, the authorities, and, and he happily tells them, he says, I came from my father. I did not come of my own accord, but my father sent me. That's how I got here. And, and you don't know my father because you, 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 know, you weren't sent from him. You don't know him. I'm sent from him. You just don't know my father. And you might accept Jesus, expect Jesus to say something like that now. But he just remains silent. He gave him no answer. They've been talking about the king stuff. They've been talking about truth. But now he remains quiet. And doubtless because the Savior's mind rushed to Isaiah 53. Which, what does it say? Verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, 
and like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The Messiah we've been looking for would not be a complaining, testifying, argumentative, or even a self-declaring God, but a lowly lamb, quietly, silently, and willfully walking toward the knife of sacrifice. His life was the living and breathing word of God made flesh. He did not have to testify to his deity in this moment. He already had many times. He didn't need to now. And so after a moment of lingering silence, Pilate speaks up. He says, do you not know that I have the authority to either kill you or let you go? Do you, are you not going to say anything? And with this, um, uh, with this uh, word of authority, Jesus begins to respond. And Jesus says, Pilate, you're not the one putting a curse on me right now. You wouldn't have any authority at all unless it was given to you from my father, from my master. You beat me, you whipped me, you put these thorns on my face, you robed me in purple garments, but he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And what I think Jesus is doing there is almost purely for, for Pilate's conscience. I, I think it's kind of like um, Jesus when the disciples fall asleep praying in the garden before they come and arrest him. He says to them, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. I know it's hard, Pilate. I know you messed up. That's what your flesh does. But for those who are shouting crucify, they are in a much worse place than you. You're about an inch away from knowing who I am. They want me dead. They call me blasphemer. So for now, until it is accomplished, my mouth will remain closed. While my mouth is closed, you look to my father, the one who's in true authority. And it says from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Did Pilate believe? Did, did Pilate know who Jesus was? I don't know. Did Nicodemus believe back in chapter 3? We don't know. But pretty soon, Pilate just might get to meet Nicodemus when Joseph of Arimathea comes to ask for the body by Pilate's permission, and he and Nicodemus would bury him. The question for us is, do we believe? Do we believe who Jesus says he was? Pilate fights for his release, but we know how the story goes. The curse was not lifted. He must be crucified for us. Number four, crucified for us. Look at 12, verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Now Pilate's best efforts are again stifled by his own reputation. If Pilate were to release Jesus, well then the Jews would, they would go and tell all the world that, that Pilate is no friend of Caesar. In fact, Pilate opposes Caesar. He let Jesus go, the one who says he's greater than Caesar. Well, that was the tipping point for Pilate. 
no matter how much his fearful, dead conscience was, he walks Jesus out from his headquarters to the judgment seat. Perhaps at this point, blood has had a chance to dry up a little bit on his purple robe. His forehead has almost gone numb with constant nerve endings being stimulated by the thorns in his flesh. Perhaps his eyesight is a little blurry through the dried blood on his eyes and the beatings. Pilate sits down at the judgment seat, which was in the middle of a large stone platform, which would have been about 3,000 square feet in size. And it's on this seat that the Roman judge would make the final verdict. Gabatha means lofty. It was a high place that all could see and observe the verdict. And the irony here is that this one who was approaching the judgment seat for damnation will one day come and judge the whole earth, people of all nations, but not until atonement is offered. So, so the, he says it's the Passover preparation. It was noontime, uh, six hour. Um, they needed to, to, to get moving, I think, is why John inserts this. The Sabbath is coming. We've heard John talk a lot about the Sabbath and the authorities talking about the Sabbath because of what Jesus was doing. Passover meal has already taken place, but there was one lamb that they had not yet sacrificed. They had already uh, done their slaughtering. They'd already had their Passover meal. There were many lambs given in atonement that week, but one last sacrifice had to be made. And so Pilate comes out and he says, Behold your king. They cry, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate makes one final plea, Shall I crucify your king? The crowds respond with more manipulation. Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Yes, crucify him. So you can imagine them, as he, he turns Jesus over to the crowd, he, he, he picks Jesus up from the judgment seat, and you can almost vision the, the crowd rushing in to capture him and to take him to the place of the skull, to take him to Golgotha. You can imagine his body being ripped apart by their fisted hands and their blinded hearts of rage. All they want to do is crucify Jesus. So they put a cross on his back, and they expect him, weak and flesh-torn, to carry it up a hill. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about a man named Simon who come and, and help him carry it along. They make it to the place of the skull, and it says there they crucified him, along with two others, one to his right, one to his left, with Jesus in the middle. We have so few details about the crucifixion. All four gospel writers saw it to be a very normal thing. They assumed many details for the reader. But one thing we all must see today is that it should have been us. It should have been us. When Pilate made his verdict, when, when the people rushed in to take our Savior, the sinless one, and to, to, to put him on a tree for crucifixion and not only to be killed at the hands of these Jews, but to endure all of God's wrath on his shoulders for sins he never committed. It should have been us. But we're the one, we're the ones who are reading Pilate's inscription. We're the ones reading 
his, uh, his title at the bottom of the cross, criticizing the one on the cross. Verse 19, we criticized him. It says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And of course, Pilate responds, What I've written, I have written. Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying very slowly, blood dripping down beneath him. At the foot of the cross, there is this inscription in three different languages, which reads... Uh, it reads, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And so these people coming under Jesus, blood dripping down, trying to read this inscription in three different languages, begin to, this commotion of saying, what, what, what is this? This isn't right. And, and it was very normal for under a crucifixion to have the sin of the, the victim, the guilty person, written so that all could see and to increase the public shame. But here... We don't have a, a particular sin given, but rather we have a title. We have a, a, a deity, a, a proclamation, a declaration at the bottom of his cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And of course the people say, Pilate, you need to change this. This isn't right. He said, I am King of the Jews. And Pilate, I think, is getting a little bit of his own revenge uh, by saying, what I've written, I have written. I know this man wasn't guilty. And by God's providence, in Pilate's pen, Jesus' inscription is not an indictment, but a declaration of deity written in three different languages. Why in three different languages? Because again, by God's providence, this declaration of deity would go far beyond the Jewish tongue. This would go far beyond the Roman tongue. This would reach every tongue on the planet. This would reach every people group, every nation would know that Jesus of Nazareth was king of the Jews and not only king of the Jews but the very son of God. One day every knee will bow as we just sang. We tried to kill him. We tried to erase the inscription but Pilate said what I've written, I have written criticize the poor dying man all you want but Jesus taught something Pilate very very Valuable. You cannot stop the truth from being the truth, even if you kill the person telling the truth. We can pretend that all this didn't actually happen. We can pretend maybe that it did happen but wasn't actually this brutal. We can pretend that it did happen but wasn't actually our fault. We can pretend all kinds of wild things that will make us feel better about ourselves. We can talk about the Easter Bunny. We can do all our fun spring dinners and cookouts. We can wear our pastel colors. We can live like this never happened. But the truth is still the truth. God became a man. He became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God came and lived this perfect, sinless life, waiting patiently for 30 years until His hour had come. The righteous Son of God was crowned for us, was cursed for us, closed His mouth for us, was crucified for us, and we criticized Him, saying He's a liar. He's a man among men. This is no king. This is no God. 
He did all this because our sin has consequences. God chose to pour out his wrath for sin on Jesus rather than the ones who deserved it, displaying justice and mercy simultaneously as he hung on the cross. Christ absorbed God's wrath for us, died, was buried, and rose from the dead, calling all human beings to believe in his gospel or wrath will remain. And for those under the cross that day, pretending that this was false, that this wasn't real, wrath remained. The truth remained. Do you believe this? Are you pretending this is all just some sort of game? That this is all just some weird coping mechanism for human beings to get along on earth? Or do you believe that the Son of God came? was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected on the third day. Do you believe this truth remains? Who do you say that he is? This demands our attention. This demands our souls. This demands our lives. We were created for this one truth, to know and love our God forever, our maker, our father, our savior, who came to make peace with sinners to a holy God. This is our creation. This is why we exist. Who do you say that he is? Come and be saved. Because while he was being crowned, And while he was being cursed, and while his mouth remained closed, and while he was crucified, and while he was being criticized, he was concerned for sinners like his own mom. He was concerned. Look at the end here. He was concerned for us. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, Tunic was seamless, woven from one piece to the bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it. Let us cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus is slowly dying. The the soldiers are underneath him, casting lots, rolling dice, playing rock, paper, scissors for his clothing, for his garments, for his tunic. Tunic was seamless. They said, let's not tear this thing apart and split it four ways. Let's, let's cast lots to see who gets it. And they didn't know what was going on, even though I'm sure they had read Psalm 22 as Jewish individuals, which David sings of his unique suffering, where there was much going on besides just cast, uh, lots being casted for clothing. David sang, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
I have no idea what was going on in David's life for him to sing that. But what we do know is that now this is Jesus' song. This was Christ who would be singing, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is how that very psalm begins. Would Jesus cry out to these soldiers, reminding them of Psalm 22? He's not even looking at them. The clothing thing isn't even on his mind right now. He sees his mother nearby. He sees her sister. He sees Mary of Clopas. He sees Mary Magdalene. He sees the disciple whom he loved. He sees John standing nearby. And he does cry out. He doesn't cry out to the soldiers casting lots for his clothing. He doesn't cry out to the evildoers encircling him. He cries out to his own. He cries out to these five standing nearby watching him suffer. He sees his mother. He says, woman, behold your son. And if you can flip back into your sermon index to John chapter 2, you'll remember a wedding at Cana in which Jesus went with his new disciples to this wedding in which his mother approached him and said, Jesus, they're all out of wine. Do something. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But Jesus decides instead for his hour to come, he decides to put forth a picture and he turns water into wine and he, he covers the sin of the bridegroom who didn't prepare enough wine and he, he gives wine to all there at the wedding party so that they can drink and be full and not even know the sin that was before them, the emptiness that was before them. And the man would say, this is the good stuff. You've saved your best wine until now. And so he says, woman, behold your son. This is the wine of the wedding. This is my blood poured out for you. This is my blood poured out for sinners. This is why that angel came to you 33 years ago and told you to take care of me and raise me in your womb for nine months and to see me to adulthood. This is why I have come. This is my hour. Jesus wasn't only just portraying his death and reminding her of the wedding, but he was doing something even more. He was concerned for her. Woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Take care of her. Joseph is likely already dead by this point, most scholars believe. He says, John, the disciple whom I love, take her away. Don't let her see any more of this. She has seen my hour. She has seen God's wrath poured out on me. Go and take care of her. Jesus was concerned for his own. In his last moments of life, concerned for them. So here's the only application for you, Main Street. Jesus was crowned with thorns. Jesus was cursed by God for our sins. 
Jesus closed his mouth and walked like a lamb to his slaughter. Jesus was crucified with evildoers at his side. Jesus was criticized for the truth. And in all of this, Jesus was concerned for sinners. So, to the believers in this room today, if Jesus could provide for his own in the moment of weakness and humiliation, how much more can he meet all your needs today where he sits powerfully at the right hand of the Father, interceding for sin, full of power and wealth and glory? How much more can he take care of you if he could look past the soldiers underneath him to cry out to his five cowering Friends, how much more will he come to your rescue today? He cares for you more than you will ever know. He died for you. He gave you his righteousness. And he now spends every waking moment fighting for your good and preparing you for eternity. Maybe you're here today and you're not so sure you're a believer. You're lost in sin. Maybe you feel broken if you're looking at Christ and his cross. Here's my question for you. Do you know the consequences of your sin? Do you know what your sin deserves before God? Look to the cross. If you don't, your sin deserves worse than crucifixion. Your sin deserves the wrath of God, the curse of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of our sin is death, and that's an eternal death. Jesus said himself in Matthew 25 that those who die in their sin will hear these words. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You can pay your debt back to God for sin by spending an eternity separated from his love, from his peace, in a hell, a fiery hell that he has prepared for sinners who turn from his cross and insist on criticizing his truth. Or you can believe on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as the one true sacrifice for sin, and you can be made righteous. And Jesus will look or the Father will look on your righteousness as if it was the very righteousness of Jesus, as if you had never sinned, as if you are pure, undefiled, set apart, made holy for God, and are prepared for an eternity in the realms of glory and a new heavens and a new earth. And, will, and Christ will absorb the very wrath that you deserve. Do you know the consequences of your sin? If you do, I beg of you to come to Christ. He will save you, and he will make you righteous. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now. Is there anything better to do after looking at the intimate details of the cross? Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com 
or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.